Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover. I am Vlad, and my guest today is Raj, who is also known as Rajashi Micra on Twitter. And he is a prominent Indian Bitcoiner, and he likes to tell me that there aren't a lot of Bitcoiners in India, and he is part of that very small community, which he has formed and, and he has become a part of. So it's very fascinating to know more about the second most populous country in the world and how it actually goes with these innovations in the way we perceive money and the way we transact. So hello, Raj. Hey, Vlad. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. And I'm happy that you told me that you want to join this podcast after you have listened. I think it was the John Carvalho podcast that you listened to? Yeah, 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 right. I, I have listened to all of your podcasts. So uh, that was the podcast that uh, we uh, posted in Twitter. And I was just suggesting people to listen to you because uh, there, there seems to be a lot of great content, but not enough uh, viewership. So uh, I thought like uh, this is a very important work that you are doing. There are interesting conversations that are coming out of it. And I'm just trying to promote it as much as I can in small little communities I have. Uh, I'm very grateful for that, by the way. And I'm happy yeah, that no I'm here. And the first yeah, thanks for having me. For this you. is my first podcast. For, and thanks for giving me this opportunity to talk Bitcoin. It's always fascinating to talk Bitcoin with other people. Yeah, sure. I guess that's why I'm doing this. And I like giving the chance to speak to people who otherwise wouldn't get this opportunity. Because, you know, this is a very large community in Bitcoin and there are lots of people with different backgrounds doing lots of interesting stuff. And usually yeah. if you look at Bitcoin podcasts, you're going to see that the shows tend to have the same guests and you're going to have this situation where you end up listening to a different podcast, but the same person saying basically the same stuff, promoting their company and you know, yeah, true. Yeah, true. That happens. That happens just a lot. Being in PR mode in various places. So to me, it's very interesting to interact with people who have a different background, who maybe haven't spoken in other podcasts and at the same time have something very interesting to say. And mm -hmm. my curiosity in regards to you and what you do is how did you get into Bitcoin and why? What was maybe what what drove you to it was mm -hmm. there like an ideological predisposition or some kind of personal values that made you think that this is what you're looking for or was it just pure curiosity which took you down the rabbit hole and made you appropriate cert certain ideological components Okay, yeah, I understand what the question is. And uh, yeah, the, uh, it's a very interesting journey that I had. So uh, there are lots of parts to it. So uh, what happened is I stumbled upon Bitcoin uh, on October 2017, kind of like in an accident way. So uh, if you remember, that was the time when the market was going into this boom, the 2017 cycle. And uh, Bitcoin was all over the news. And I happened to have some... Um, uh, extra money is in my hand, so I thought, like, okay, why not just put it and see what happens? And then I uh, 
went up and I, I thought the first thing that I did was some kind of crypto index fund. So I have crawled my way through all the shit binaries. So uh, the first thing that I noticed was this, uh, that the thing that popped out was this address. Okay, this weird random long address. And I was like, okay, that's weird. I haven't seen these things before. So what is this thing? And so uh, that's when I started to go deeper. But the story goes a little back because uh, when I was doing my master's in uh, structural engineering, I was quite, quite fed up with the way academics work. I was like uh, fed up with the culture of academia and I was totally frustrated that there is so much lack of curiosity happening in this academic field that uh, I, I just wanted to leave it. But uh, instead of leaving it, what I did is like, okay, if I'm not being able to study what I want to study, so why not study on my own? So at that point on 2016, I started studying the most difficult subject that I could find, that was theoretical physics. So I started studying theoretical physics and I did that for two years and that was a fascinating journey. And then I stumbled upon Bitcoin. So by that time I stumbled upon Bitcoin, I already had this uh, uh, this, uh, this, this curios curiosity drive to understand complex things. And when I saw this thing called crypto or Bitcoin, I didn't understand what's the difference between them back then and it seemed that it's pretty complex thing and i thought okay i'm done with physics let's not let's just dive into another field and see what happens and when i started diving deep into it something very fascinating occurred to me and which goes back into another period of my time when i, I was in my bachelor's so here uh, i think it's a very interesting story uh, when i was in my bachelor's i was in a university which is very much politically active uh, in the sense that we organized rallies, we organized all these sorts of meetings, we organized all these sorts of political discussions, debates, and cultures that were very predominant in this uh, sphere of academia. And uh, uh, you, uh, and uh, the curious thing is, I am placed in the western province of India called West Bengal, and this place, this particular geography, has been dominated by communist ideologies for la like last 40 years. And we had a communist regime for 37 years uh, before it broke down. So these ideas of uh, what uh, when i started joining into my these discussions and debates these ideas of communist thinking and communist romanticism was very much ingrained into me in a social and cultural way and later i figured out after coming out of my small zone and looking at the world that the idea of communist communism is kind of like treated in international global uh, space as almost as a form of uh, terrorism or almost as a form of like a very heinous thing that you don't want to talk about but it was not the situation when i was in, in my area it's still not the situation in most part of the bengal because the ideas and romanticism of communism was pretty much ingrained in their literatures in their cultures in their poetries and in their songs and all in the stories so there are a lot of people so people who are communist and uh, who think communism still can work, but I don't believe it anyway. Uh, but at some point, I was also subscribing to myself as a communist. And by the end, I passed out from my college. And when I was have, having done through all these discussions and all these uh, debates of why communism failed, and the interesting part is like uh, communists started with a movement. If you uh, look it up, it's called the Naxalite movement of Western uh, Western province of India, mostly happened in Bengal regions. And 
they went uh, as a student movement it was my university and many other universities surrounding my cities who where the, this movement actually started its epicenter they were like brilliant students who like dropped out of college and picked up guns to destroy the state or whatever it is and they, that created a huge amount of force and ultimately they came into the democratic power around 1978 they ruled west bengal uh, the communist party ruled west bengal from 1978 to 2010 ultimately before they completely collapsed uh, collapsed through utter corruptions and bureaucracies and all so it was a fascinating thing for me to see how a certain uh, uh, how a certain very uh, ideologically motivated brilliant people take up arms with, uh, where they could have been engineers doctors lawyers or whatever but they chose to take up arms and all they most of them died for an ideology that didn't seem to work and that kind of bugged me a lot that why did this why did this thing didn't work and i wanted to understand it and uh, I, i didn't started understanding it until i stepped in bitcoin and the moment i stepped in bitcoin within the first two day i was kind of like swept away with the uh, when when i saw the problem statement that they are trying to solve i didn't knew any any clue how they are solving it i didn't knew how bitcoin works i didn't knew how any of this shit works but i saw the problem statement and that problem statement hit me in my mind in a very blunt way like this is the problem statement i have been asking for all these years this is the problem that is related to why communism fall why a central planning doesn't work and how can you have uh, anarchic systems without a central planning so 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 the other uh, the width of the pro- problem immediately blew my mind and i was kind of like whoa this is big i need to understand how this thing works and that was the first step i took at the entrance of the rabbit hole and since it's been two years and i am still not out of it and i am just still going further and further and further and i think that was the drive that put me into this quest of understanding bitcoin because i thought because I, i i immediately made that link because this is somehow related to my very old question why central planning of communist structures cannot work and if that cannot work what else you can do without having a self imposed structure of state or politburo or any kind of hierarchy into the society can the will the society fall into chaos before bitcoin i thought it would the answer was yes to me if you don't have a structure if you don't have a hierarchy you cannot have order and once i saw bitcoin once i saw the byzantine chaos problem and i understood the problem statement and and i realized this is the exact same problem that you were trying to solve i don't care if you solve it or not but the fact that you were trying to solve it is immense and the fact that you have a fucking computer protocol that you can use to solve it is out of this world so that's what got me into bitcoin yeah that's very fascinating because i'm also coming from a country which used to be communist until 1989 mm-hmm. and I, i know all about this from my parents and the way they were grown and indoctrinated with the ideology and how they were they still relate to power in a different way and they have mm-hmm. this kind of respectful fear for whoever is more powerful than they are and they have a different view towards hierarchies and power structures Mm-hmm. So I know that 
whatever we call communism in any part mm -hmm. of the world is actually mm -hmm. a form of state capitalism. And exactly. Uh, what was interesting? Uh, what was interesting was also while I was having these discussions at the end uh, in my uh, student community, all uh, most of these people, even they are left-leaning, right-leaning, irrespective of their political ideologies or irrespective of their party or association, most of them seems to understand this point that it's not the it's not the person who is at the top who is at fault who is at fault. It's the structure who is at fault. So uh, this idea of anarchy was almost ingrained into, in a subconscious level, in this part of the communist regime of the world, where people inherently understood. This came up a lot of time in our debates and discussion that it's we, we should not be fighting against a person or a party. We should be fighting against a structure, and. People understood this problem, that it's the problem of the structure, it's not the problem of the party or problem of the leadership. So you have to solve the structure somehow. And uh, But th th there is no way that you can have this kind of, any kind of perceivable or conceivable meaningful solution of order without a structure. And that's, what, that's why Bitcoin was fascinating me, because it's exactly that. Yeah, I, I guess Bitcoin, if you take it from this perspective, also creates this kind of classes of citizens. And I remember Satoshi saying in a comment on Bitcoin talk that people who do not validate their own transactions and rely on somebody else, somebody else's node is a second class citizen. But yeah, I right. guess this is more of a joke. Mm, I don't think I, I, I don't think it's a joke. It, uh, it, it has a, a sustainable, I mean, a tangible... The second class citizen part is a joke, but it makes a lot of sense for you to want to validate your own transactions. Yeah, it does. It does. Also, 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 I, I, I kind of have a different view on this. It's like um, this entire ecosystem made out of individuals and each of individuals are citizens. So the classification of the citizens are dependent, are, are based on how much impact a citizen's decision is made on the structure of this entire system. So you have the first class citizens as those whose decisions have the highest amount of impact, who runs their own node, who validates their own transaction, who, who maintains their own private keys. So they have the highest amount of influence. Raj? Oh, I lost you. Value that. Raj, I lost you for about 10 seconds. Okay, so uh, can you hear me now? Yes, you're saying that some people have the infrastructure to validate their own transactions, and that's where... Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I think this uh, classifications of uh, citizenship comes from this fact that uh, these individuals who have this, all these required sovereign individuals at, uh, infrastructures at their home to, in order to validate their own transactions or have their own private keys, they have the highest amount of influence. Even if it is at an individual level, it's very minuscule. If you add up all these people who are doing the same, then it's become a very tangible, real thing. And I think a part of that happened in the No to X debate and the, that battle that uh, happened in 2017. So there we saw there is a huge 
impact of individuals running their own node. So it kind of makes sense to segregate citizenships depending on the impact that they are imposing on their individual decision-making level over the whole ecosystem. So from your perspective, do you think that Bitcoin is much more than an economic system which competes with world finance and you see a political dimension to it? I do. I, I do. Uh, yeah, I do. I, I, I do not have yet formulated a coherent view of how might that look like, but I do have a feeling that Bitcoin is much more like a lifestyle thing than it's just an economical system. It's an economical system at first, but it's also a lifestyle thing. And uh, it changes, your, you, you have to mold your lifestyle, you have to mold your way of thinking, you have to mold your time preference in certain ways in order to meaningfully participate in this ecosystem, in this economical system even. So uh, yeah, it, it, it has this kind of effects and uh, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. And you're basically implying that every participant must educate himself or herself in order to yeah. participate to this system. But yeah. my counterexample right now, and you said that you haven't formulated your ideas. Maybe that's why we are having this conversation. So we get a better understanding of cool. what we're thinking. But let, let's think of the average Coinbase user who doesn't even know what a public key and a private key is. They just know that they bought something which they hold in that wallet. And they will mm -hmm. probably never switch to their own wallet. They just check price whenever they see mainstream media news. And mm -hmm. that's pretty much it. They, they don't care much. It's like a yeah. hobby. They're, they yeah. don't care enough to get involved. Are we mm -hmm. going to say that these people are not authentic participants or that they don't matter because I guess they, they are a large part of the economy. If you look yes. at how much yes. of the community gets involved on forums or on Twitter, you're mm -hmm. going to see that this world is quite small. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, it's a few thousand people who are just like these crazy teen head cypherpunks who are like running nodes and buying hardware wallets. And uh, I think What's happening here is basically all these people, the entire people who doesn't care about Bitcoin, who cares about Bitcoin, who runs their node, who doesn't run node, all this spectrum of the entire people does have all of their influence on the whole economy. Even the governments who bans Bitcoin does have an influence on Bitcoin. Even the uh, even the banker who hates Bitcoin, who, who will never buy that piece of shit, also has an effect on Bitcoin. So everybody has their effect on this ecosystem and these effects are not exactly similar for everybody else. Uh, for everybody else. So it, it doesn't mean to say that everybody needs to run their node or everybody has to go through this, all these cryptographic uh, primitives and all these complex structures and all these complex concepts to understand and to meaningfully participate in Bitcoin. It's not that. We just need enough people who are doing that. Because if we have enough people who are doing that the remaining of the ecosystem can gather around these people, can gather around this infrastructure and do whatever they want to do. So uh, the ecosystem will evolve in this diverse way and uh, 
there, there is a very uh, uh, similar parallel that exists between this particular characteristics of bitcoin and the way uh, gold is used in indian household uh, basically i was just uh, looking through your post last night when you posted and somebody suggested that you should ask this question of how gold and india uh, how how gold culture in india can help bitcoin or or its or the reverse of it i think there is a very interesting pair i was thinking about it and in india uh, most of the people every household lower class to upper class from an entire spectrum has a certain stash of gold in it okay now they have this gold but they don't see that gold as a investment vehicle they don't see that gold as a store of value 90% of the people in india doesn't care what's the value of gold is yet they have it the reason they don't care about the value of gold what is the price of gold is today because they are not willing to sell they don't sell their gold so they hold this gold the most of the time what happens is this gold changes hand through generations after generations after generations without ever being liquidated and the only time an indian household middle class lower middle class upper class anyway any indian household touches their gold stack and liquidate it in the problem of in the time of crisis and that is also at the very last resort when they have nothing else in saving when they have nowhere else to get the last bomb of liquidity to extract they will touch their gold and sell it so what's happening here the people in india uh, the uh, the common household people who have their gold they they don't understand why it's gold if you go and ask them why do you behave for this yellow rock why do you think this yellow rock has value they will not be able to give you a proper answer because they are not acting on a conscious level it's it's ingrained in their subconscious in such a way through cultural and social norms of thousands of years that they they immediately feel that it's a good idea to get a piece of gold without having to think about how gold is changing or uh, how gold is a hardest money or hard money or how they are going to go against the central bank or any kind of austrian or libertarian philosophy they 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 have no clue and they do not even understand why gold has the properties it has so that it can retain its value throughout time but th- that doesn't matter that doesn't matter to have them that stack of gold so i think the cultures develop in this way so you have certain you have a certain group of small chunks who see things differently who invest in gold for a whatever purpose so there are gold bugs and all there are gold bugs in india so they invest in gold they put money into their gold as a return of investment or as a self sovereign store of value or whatever but that doesn't stop stop other people to have gold as a store of value without even knowing why they are using it as a store of value or why it is a good store of value that other other metal crafts so this happens over generations and generations and it takes a longer time to get engraved into the social psyche of the people to behave around certain asset classes in this way and bitcoin has exact same properties as gold so i don't see any reason why this kind of behaviors cannot happen 
around Bitcoin because it has the same properties that you need to simulate this phenomenon. So even though people don't run their full node, even though they are not libertarian, even though they don't care about uh, central banking, monetary policies, inflation, all it, the social psyche can be built around Bitcoin in such a way that people immediately know in their gut that it's a good idea to have some sets without being able to explain why that might be the case. I guess in 200 years, we're going to have something similar, especially maybe, maybe even closer than that, maybe before 2140, when we're going to have the last few Bitcoins being mined. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what's going to happen to the network at that point if the community will decide to hard fork and maybe create a greater inflation or they will just have a moment and say, this is it, we're going to use this supply rationally and make sense out of it, see how we can distribute the coins in a way that helps the prosperity of whatever they're going to have, like world state or nation states or I have no idea what's what the future yeah, yeah. like. Yeah, no clue. Nobody has any idea. It's very difficult to uh, try to predict futures even beyond three to four years because uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb described this very lucidly and very uh, rightly because the, our entire world is basically random. So there are lots of randomness that we cannot even comprehend. So if we know what would happen in future we would already have that in present because we know how to do that in future. That means we know how how to solve that problem. So if we know how to solve that problem in future, that means we know how to solve that problem now. So the fact that we don't happen to have the future does says on its own that we don't, we cannot predict the future uh, looking at our present. So that's a very deeper philosophical meaning about uh, exploration on reality. But, I want to touch another point that there is a difference between Bitcoin and gold, and that is our tangibility. This, uh, what it seems around me is uh, in this uh, Indian society, when when a house when a housewife uh, gets a small stack of gold, or in form of jewelries, or in form of earrings, in form of a necklace, or in form of any other form, they 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 always tend to have the form in such a way that they can show off it to the society. And this showing off is a very crucial part of having that asset because you you, you want to have a kind of thing that you can show to people, you can point to people, you can hold in your hand and you can wear it in your body and display to the society that you have this asset. It, it kinds of bring a, 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 a human bias into forefront that a human, humans are prone to uh, display their, their status, their social positions, their, uh, uh, their way of life, their way of thinking in society and in, in the surrounding society near them. And that is a very crucial part of being socialized. And uh, so th- that is the problem that Bitcoin and have that gold doesn't, that you cannot just point to a thing and you say like, look, this is my Bitcoin, or uh, look, I have made a necklace out of Bitcoin, even though that is not my entire Bitcoin stack, but 
I, I, I am showing off my Bitcoin stack to the society as a form of displaying my social position. You cannot do that with Bitcoins. Well, so, you can wear a QR code. <laughs> and, 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 and people can scan it and see how much Bitcoin you have. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's you can true. imagine that they're going to have some kind of wearable item which scans the codes, like the Google Glass. You know that thing? Yeah, yeah. It's something which enables augmented reality. So mm-hmm. if people in the future are going to be wearing that, they can actually see how much Bitcoin each other actually has if they want to show off. Yeah, but yeah, true, true. I true. think that yeah, fundamentally that. <laughs> the culture of Bitcoiners is to not reveal how much they yes. have shown for yes. reasons yes. or for personal security mm-hmm. reasons. As yes. You don't want to get doxxed. You don't want to get swatted. Mm-hmm. If you own a lot of Bitcoin, it's a lot better for you to be pseudonymous on the internet and try not to reveal any personal detail about what you do, where you live, and stuff like that. Yeah, true. I, I, this is this is this is uh, the thing about Bitcoin. It incentivizes you to think about your privacy. It incentivizes you to take responsibility of your privacy. And that's the lifestyle teaching that Bitcoin teaches you when you try to hold your private key. It's a very difficult job to hold your private key. So, so I think Bitcoin in this form, I'm not very sure, but it seems to me that Bitcoin will not be properly, completely eradicate existence of gold because gold doesn't have this kind of incentives. So. Of course so, it does. It, it's another form of property. You have to find... Yeah, it, 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 it does another form of property. But, uh, but, uh, uh, but the thing is, like, if you wear a gold necklace, it just looks good. And there is a social norm that established in the society that everybody agrees that it looks good on you. Uh, like, that's the mental psychology that happens in every Indian woman. So they are fascinated about gold jewelry because it's shiny, it looks good, and uh, they're fascinated about, it's not, it cannot be just any yellow metal. You can, uh, if you have a yellow metal that is painted yellow metal ring, and you have a gold metal, there is very different, very, uh, very, it's very difficult to just watch and see and tell from your eyes, like, which one is the real one. But it doesn't, it almost like it doesn't matter to them. They want the real thing because they want to tell people that this is the gold that I have. And that uh, showing that doesn't also um, tells everybody else readily that they have a huge gold stash somewhere hidden. So uh, that's the thing that is happening with gold, but you cannot happen to have that in Bitcoin, because if you tell, if you try to show off your Bitcoin holding, the very next thing that you will have that you, you will get doxxed and you will get all sorts of attacks on you on on personal things. So you have to be secretive about your Bitcoins. But you, it, it, it seems to me that it's not necessary for gold because people can comfortably display their gold to the society, yet they can be relatively secured about their entire gold stack hidden somewhere. Yeah, that's just because everybody supposedly has their own stack of gold. So it's more unlikely for you to actually want to steal somebody else's. Right, and that's also There true. is also this social structure which 
allows people to know how much gold the other person owns. So if you steal from them, it's going to be very obvious. Mm-hmm. You're going to get right. caught. So your incentives to actually try to rob somebody of their gold in India, I guess, are yes. much lower just because your everybody has it. Caught are high, and everybody has it. So your neighbor knows how much gold you have, and mm-hmm. if you happen to show off with the gold that you stole from somebody else, then I guess it's going to be well known as people can recognize. But at the same time, gold is one of these metals which aren't wasted. So you can melt gold and put it in different shapes yes. and create various objects or jewelry with it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Most of the time it happens. What happens is like this gold stack of every Indian household, they never get liquidated. What happens is they get transferred through generations and generations and generations without ever getting liquidated. In the process, they get molded from one jewelry to another jewelry or from multiple jewelries to one big jewelries or all sorts of different kinds of forms. But they almost never get liquidated. There are households which have this gold stack or some particular items of gold that has been in their family for generations of generations and they never think about liquidating it. And this particular effect is also also true in case of Bitcoins. Uh, There are people in Bitcoin space, I believe, who have this mentality of never liquidating their Bitcoin because because they can simulate that exact same thing that Indians are doing with their gold of passing wealth to generation without ever needing to convert it into other form of money or without ever being a, needing to calculate its ROI per se. And that works. And there is no reason why it cannot work for Bitcoin. It can similarly work for Bitcoin. And I think we will, over the over our generation and over the next generation, we will see this kind of things happening when the Bitcoin doesn't even touches the blockchain anymore. It, the, the, it, it, you just transfer the private keys from generation to generation to generation. And uh, that's how, uh, and, and it, can, it can retain its wealth very effectively through time. So you can very easily do that. And I think people will do that at a certain point of time. In the culture from which I come in Romania, there used to be this tradition for women to get gold after the marriage, and it was gifted by the man whom they were marrying as a guarantee that if they get left alone, they're going to be able to break even and become independent financially. This was before we had divorces, which allow you to take 50% of what you commonly own. And before Mm -hmm. we had this sort of legal and civil agreements, it was just a social norm to ensure that the woman, the woman, if she happens to be left alone and abandoned, she would a- be able to handle herself financially. And the gold was a guarantee that was offered to her for a good life, no matter what. Mm-hmm. True. Same thing happens here. Yeah, it makes sense. In mm. a social and political structure where you you actually don't want to waste your life and you don't want to... I don't know how I should call the term. 
you don't want to be left alone. You don't want to yeah. start you, from you, somewhere. You, and... need, you need some kind of securities. And exactly. gold seems to be a very socially accepted normative form of securities that you just transfer it to somebody, just handing it over. That's all you need to do. And that's all. And it's socially accepted and it's easy to do. And it has, and, and to, to, as it has retained its values through time very effectively, it has ingrained in the social psyche that this is a very good thing to do. This is a good idea to have some gold. So that's how these kind of norms emerges out of both societies. The and, point where I was trying to get from this is that what we were having is a very primitive form of what we have right now and is called multi-sig. So it mm-hmm. was a mutual agreement between multiple parties in which everybody owned like a part of a private key. Right. And if they wanted to get out, they had their way of actually being financially well off if they wanted mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Right now, if you wanted to replicate it, you'd have a three-part private key, and each spouse would have one, and the other one would be maybe stored in a bank. So if one of them wanted to divorce and they agreed that it's okay for them to separate, then they would get access to that third part, and the spouse who is maybe in the worst financial situation would be able to get access to that Bitcoin. True. Yeah, that kind of thing can emerge. It's much easier to do this kind of constructs with Bitcoin than than, than on gold. You cannot do this kind of crazy uh, multi-sig things on gold, but you can very easily do that on Bitcoin. And we will see a lot of, I think we will see a lot of this kind of primitive uh, social contracts that can leverage the power of Bitcoin smart contracting tools to have this kind of ways for people to negotiate different kind of social norms and different kind of uh, mitigation of social situations. And yeah, we are just at the tip of the iceberg. We just don't know how far this thing can go. We just know that this is big. This is huge. This has huge implications on our society. And we just have to wait and see. And this is the fun part of a Bitcoin, of studying Bitcoin. Like you don't have to, you don't have to bang your head a lot to figure out a problem or figure out a solution of the problem. The problem has been solved. All you need to do now is sit back and observe. And the thing will unfold in our eyes in, in real time. And that will be a sight to behold. We just don't know what's going to happen. Well, we know what's going to happen with the currency itself as it has a fixed monetary policy. Mm -hmm. And that's predictable. And that's part of the reason why we agree that Bitcoin has value. The reason why I got into Bitcoin has more to do with the inflation and the monetary debasement happening in my country, where... Mm -hmm you have a monthly inflation rate of about 4%. So let's say that if I make about $1,000 a month, then from one month to the other, I'm going to lose $40 of purchasing power. Yeah, that's terrible. And not only that is terrible, but the prices that you have for the phone bill, for your rent, and for 
a lot of services that you pay are actually calculated in the euro, which is the European currency of reference. And it's a lot more stable than the Romanian low. So it makes a lot of sense to look for something which helps you retain the value of your money if you want to save. Otherwise, you're going to end up in this rat race where you're incentivized to spend your cash as fast as you can and dump it to the other person. And you're not going to save anything. It's all about consuming and buying and buying and buying. And that's how you're That's That's the vicious consumer death cycle that happens in hyperinflating countries. And uh, also uh, 4% inflation monthly is very, very high. And that disrupts a lot of life. So our world needed this kind of ways to retain their values and gold was doing a very bad job at it because of its nature, because it's heavy, because it's a physical metal. So it it needs to be inherently centralized in a vault. So that was the big fault of gold. So gold failed us to provide the store of value we needed. And Bitcoin came in a very crucial time of our human history. We were, we were just going to get doomed into this ever inflationary cycle of central banks spending money. And it's not that they are bad people. They can't do anything about it. They can't just stop it. The moment they try to stop it, the entire economy will collapse. So they are kind of in a path of self-destruct. They will self-destruct themselves within next hundred years, maybe even sooner, nobody knows. But yeah, for the first time we have this relief valve system where the society can finally say, like, screw you, screw your monetary policies. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play your game. I'm not gonna play this stupid game of endless consumerism. I'm going to save my money. I'm going to build my future, and I'll just pass it on. Even if I can't liquidate it, even if you don't let me to convert it into fiat currencies, I don't care. I'll just, I'll just pass it on to my next generation, and maybe they don't even need to. So that kind, this is a very big statement, and this is a very uh, impactful statement that a human individual can say to himself. So this thing is a lot. It's not just about oneself, it's also about the society at large and the government, as when you refuse to use the currency that your government issues, you're creating a problem which has no precedent and has no actual solution. They can ban Bitcoin. They can tell you, you will not be able to convert legally your Bitcoin into our national currency, but they will not be able to confiscate you. They'll confiscate your Bitcoin. They will not be able to censor your transactions unless you shut down the internet. But even for that, they figured out solutions with the satellite and mesh antennas with which then radio signals, which is brilliant. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Nick Sebo and Yelenu. That's (laughs) fascinating. That's fascinating. I was just reading through this paper that uh, recently launched on lightning network over mesh connections. So they are incentivizing this mesh node to forward messages 
for a very small amount of uh, for very small amount of lightning payments. So that was fascinating, and uh, yeah, we are going into zones where people are gathering more and more forces so that they can say these things to the government, like "Screw you! I am not playing your game anymore. I quit. I exit." So Bitcoin was the first exit door that 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 was placed inside a burning theater, as Andreas like to put it, and. Once we got out of this exit door, there is this new entire world, and uh, we are slowly, slowly starting to navigate through that world, and we are slowly building the houses, the electric poles, the other infrastructure, so that people can successfully leave outside that burning theater. So, so far, we have just gone outside the door through that exit door. And as we are going out through that exit door, people are building more stuff so that we can go further out and out and out. And it's going to keep on building. I agree. But what is the situation of Bitcoin in India? It's the second most populous country in the world. Some people estimate that within 20 or 30 years, you're going to have the most citizens, mm -hmm. even more yeah. than China. And I, I suspect that there's a lot going on with Bitcoin, right? Uh, not necessarily, not really. Uh, part of the reason is the Indian currency is not failing that much catastrophically right now. So it's kind of stable. It still has, I think, a yearly 2% inflation rate, uh, which is pretty high for common people. They are, they are feeling the heat, but they don't seem to grasp what exactly is the culprit. They are blaming all sorts of different parties and all, all the political parties are like blaming each other and blaming the central parties for uh, doing this. But nobody is actually grasping why this is happening. And, but as the problem is not very dire right now, they are also not looking for a desperate exit door. Even the exit door is there, they are not looking for it right now. So uh, most of the situation in India with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are merely speculation. So they are just speculating, they, they are just looking at it and uh, seeing this price rise, this weird parabolic price rise, and they're just getting fascinated with it and they just want to make a good buck. That's all. There are people who are realizing to the fact, but it's not happening in large enough scale so that you can have a rolling moving economy of, uh, of a complete closed loop economy where you can do most of the things with Bitcoin. It's not happening that way because there is not enough need right now. The currency is kind of stable. So mostly uh, there are a lot of hype regarding the blockchain DLT and all these other crypto projects per se. Uh, today I saw an article that RBI is uh, uh, doing some R&D research on some blockchain DLT kind of thing. So they are looking into this thing from a very different perspective. So they are kind of like looking the entire structure and extracting some certain parts out of it, like the blockchain data structure or maybe whatever. I, I have no clue why they decided to extract the blockchain data structure. It's kind of irrelevant. So uh, they're extracting different parts of these structures and they are trying to build systems which are uh, the old systems, but basically trying to make it more efficient. 
and i don't think that they will be able to succeed on this quest in a very meaningful or socially transformative way because they are looking at a solution for a for which a problem doesn't exist and this has been happening a lot so most of the spaces are like that rbi has imposed a, a banking ban on cryptocurrency so this is what they are saying so they are saying uh you as an individual can do whatever with your money we don't care but they are saying the banks that it's your duty to make sure that you do not get involved in any kind of cryptocurrency transaction okay so if you may happen to have a fiat to bitcoin transfer through your bank account and the rbi knows that and the bank knows that the bank will close your account because they will say like rbi told us not to do this so we can't allow you to do this so this is the banking ban situation right now that is going on so all this blockchain and dlt people they are like uh, really putting up enough force and that's why i i don't necessarily think this all these things are bad ideas all these things are 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 irrelevant they are relevant and they are here to put the required force on the government to lift up these restrictions so and uh, they are doing a really good job the community is doing a really good job in uh, taking the entire force of the mass the entire incentives of each and every individual mass even if it's for speculation even if it's just for gambling but the incentives are real and they they are gathering these incentives and kind of building up this force on the government through um uh, policy making through uh, discussions and through media outlets to uh, withdraw this restriction and government is finding really hard time to uh, trying to negotiate this domain right now because one hand they don't want to be left left behind on a technical revolution on the other hand they don't want to be lose control over their monetary policies so they are in a very tricky situation right now just for the record what is the rbi which you mentioned uh, rbi is the reserve bank of india it is the central bank it is the fed of india okay you mentioned it about three times and i didn't want to interrupt but so it, it makes a lot of sense now no sorry i didn't get that i said that i'm happy about the clarification oh and okay also i wanted to ask you about politician views or statements about bitcoin if you had any if you had mm. any kind of mainstream uh, being spread across the media yeah yeah i uh, there hasn't been much uh, voice from the politicians uh, even from the central bankers uh, rbi governors and all those uh, people and they uh, they kind of have this i uh, rightly so and they kind of have this policy of not to talk about this thing much in public and most of the time when there has been instances of uh, uh, reporters asking question about these things they 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 seem to uh, wave off the issue as much as they can but what happened i think this month or last month i think this month there was an uh, interview where uh, two government officials came into a local news channel news channel and there were uh, another uh, blockchain business uh, pr person also there and they were having this nice conversation of how the regulatory situations can go along or can be formed and how can we learn from other countries what they are doing so what was the 
uh, interesting thing I noticed in their words is they are much more lenient now. They are not completely dismissive of it because they know that being completely dismissive doesn't work anymore. But also what they are trying to do is they are trying to raise some ethical questions about this kind of currencies, suppose say Bitcoin or uh, private privacy coins like Monero, Zcash or something. So they, what they're saying is like, these are the coins that are being used by criminals. These are the coins that are being used by money laundering. Yeah, they are good for monetary policies. They can retain value. They are a good store of value. But as a responsible citizen, do you really want to put your value onto something which is not completely ethical? So they are kind of pinching the sentiment in a different way now. So uh, instead of completely saying that this is illegal, you should not do it, they are, they are more appealing for the moral nature of individuals listening to the show, listening to the show that uh, uh, it's not actually a very ethical thing to do. So... Uh, th that's an observation that I just made. I don't think it's much significant because people are going to do what they're going to do. So it doesn't make much difference. But this is a very clear change of their position that they have shown. Uh, I think they just shifted from anger to bargain in that five stages of grief. And so that was interesting. Yeah, it is fascinating because usually they make appeal to their power and they say, we tell you to not do it and you're going to get punished by law. If Yeah, yeah, yeah. Punished. They change that stand from uh, appeal to individual ethics now because they know that their power cannot stop this thing. Did so, they try to appeal to religion in any way? I no, not necessarily right happening. now. Uh, not necessarily right now. I, I, I don't think the government official will go that far to uh, have religion, uh, religious... Um, ethics imposed on using such kind of monetary systems because that will be ridiculed away right, uh, like, uh, uh, immediately by the community or by the normal people because uh, uh, the religious uh, rigorous works in the subconscious of human culture but doesn't work in the forefront of government power structures and businesses and and economic policies and all. So they haven't made any kind of statements like that, and I don't think they will be making, uh, they will be making any kind of statement anytime soon. That, that's very good, actually, as being able to separate between religious beliefs and the state is a yeah. major step forwards in terms of having a modern state and being mm -hmm. able to do politics at scale as opposed to just addressing a small or maybe a majority of religious people. I, I saw yeah. something similar happening in Arabic states where they were reluctant to use Bitcoin, maybe in the market. Yeah, but, uh, they, they have a term for Bitcoin. They call it haram money or something like that because uh, it means that it, it show, uh, this kind of, uh, kind of uh, effect actually shows you like how much religion and state is interlinked in particular states. So uh, the states where this religion and state, uh, the nations where this religion and states are interlinked too much, like the state and the business, the, the state and the banking sector is interlinked too much in every, every nations around the world. When these kind of things happens, the state tends to appeal 
for the religious ethics that people inherently have in their subconscious in their guts so that's a very 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 prominent pinpoint for them to attack at and you won't be able to see this kind of things happening in other progressive countries where they have a complete separation between the religious and religion and the state so that's a good thing for a progressive society as you have correctly pointed out it makes the politics and to scale up for the society that it needs well in this part of the world it just happens that we saw in poland how they managed to put the catholic belief and religion into their constitution and we also had a very extremist religious group which was trying to impose their agenda to the extent that we were supposed to write into the constitution that we are christians and return to a set of norms that are very traditional and very 19th century mm-hmm. yeah so, that's the recipe for fascism that the, just one step further from there and you end up with a fascist state Well, it depends on how you define fascism, as there have been links between the church and the state before fascism was even coined as a term. Mm-hmm. But I, cool. I guess in our modern consciousness, we perceive a strong link between being a Christian fundamentally and taking your beliefs way too far and becoming a fascist and mm-hmm. rejecting maybe the values or the realities that surround you and do not comply with what you believe mm-hmm. yeah that that's true and that's what i exactly i mean by fascism it's true that there are a lot of different terms that how you describe fascism but that's what i had in mind because i have i'm seeing a very similar kind of situation happening in india also because the present party which is at power is kind of backed by this uh, religious hindu extremism it's not extremism per se at this moment but the situation can get very uh, very bad very fast from here because that's a recipe that you have in built in your system in your political structures that can very easily morph itself into a into a nazi like structure so uh, when you have this kind of ideologies uh, belief systems engraved in your constitution it's not happened in india yet that far but it's true that the political party which is right now in power come do comes from a hindu majority support systems but uh, but the, the problem is like when this happens the very next step is to is basically seclusions and uh, mass riot and all kind of chaos that happens through the society because one part of the group that believes that they have the power and they rightly have the power they believes that they have a higher high they have a higher uh, definition of morality than other groups that have these groups are not moral and that's a very dangerous situation to have let's get to something more practical and which is closer to the topic that we have surrounding bitcoin And let's imagine that right now I travel to India and I lose everything. I lose my passport, I lose my money, and all I have is maybe a cell phone with some bitcoin in it. Will I be able to survive? 
Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Uh, you, uh, you have to convert it some way to fiat because there is nobody who accepts Bitcoin as a payment for goods and services in India yet. So at this moment, what you need to do is you have to have some form of way to get that converted into fiat. So now if you don't have a banking account right in the country, if you come out from somewhere else, you have you have no banking account. So you cannot have a bank transfer. So most of the peer-to-peer -peer exchanges that are working in India happens through bank transfers. And I am not aware of any OTC desk that is at place right now where you can buy Bitcoin from cash. And uh, because the moment you try to some do something like that, the government will come and shut you down and put you into jail. So it will be very difficult to survive on Bitcoin if you have no means to convert it into fear. So what you can do is you can call up your friend. You can tell that, I, I want to use your bank account. So you send that money to an exchange. Uh, you go to an peer-to-peer uh, -peer exchange like local bitcoins or huddle huddle or Wazirex or there are many of these such things. You can go there and you make a transaction with somebody else. You sell those bitcoin, get the fiat in your friend's account, and then friend can cash it out and hand it over to you. You can do that way, but not directly with bitcoin. But let's forget about this appeal to a third party which is either institutional or commercial when you use the service. And let's say that I go to the merchants directly and I tell them, how about you take Bitcoin as a form of payment? Do you think there are any chances of persuading them because they know Bitcoin and they understand that it has value? Uh, they do. Uh, they do hard of Bitcoin. They understand it has a value, but they don't know how to use it. Uh, they they do not have an exchange account necessarily because if you go to the next door grocery store, they will not have an exchange account because they have bigger problem to solve in their life than to speculate on cryptocurrencies. So they even if they heard about Bitcoin, they will not be able to accept it because they don't have the required infrastructure at place. So. The only thing that they need to have and access it is just a computer running a BTC Pay server. So that's all they need to know. That that's all they need to have. But they don't know that they need to do this in order to accept Bitcoin, or they don't even know that why they should accept Bitcoin because uh, the 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 the, uh, I, the the propaganda that is being. Um, transferred through the mainstream media, even though the government is not directly saying it, the mainstream media is morphing the government statement and producing in front of public in such a way that the public feels that Bitcoin is right now something illegal. So that's another thing that the community is uh, trying to fight off very hard. The government never said it's illegal. They just said their banks do not to uh, not to be a part of that kind of exchange. So. Uh, but the but, but the translation of that statement in front of the common people is that Bitcoin is something illegal. So if you try to uh, persuade someone in a grocery store owner as a, 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 to, uh, to to accept Bitcoin as an exchange of goods and service, he might have heard about Bitcoin. He might have known that it is going value, but in his subconscious, he also in his consciousness, he also knows that it's something illegal. So probability is that he will answer you with a resounding no. Yeah, it makes sense. As you have fiscal authorities and you have people who check your supply of goods 
And if they discover that they have given something away and there is no way mm -hmm. for them to prove that they have taken any form of money, then they mm -hmm. can get accused of stealing. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, they can get into a lot of trouble by doing that. So even if they want to do that, they, they might not want to take that extra added risk that comes with that payment. It makes sense. Is there any piece of legislation in India which specifically mentions Bitcoin? Not right now. Not right, no, not right now. They are in the process of forming such regulations, but they have been in the process of forming such regulations maybe for last three, four years. They haven't been able to come up with anything concrete or anything documented. A uh, uh, few weeks back, there was this uh, leaked uh, document, a draft from the committee that has been formed to make a legislation or proper regulation on cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin by the Supreme Court. Uh, there was some leaked document that tends to suggest that this uh, committee is suggesting the uh, Congress, the, the Congress to pass a bill that will make Bitcoin illegal. That means uh, dealing, selling, buying, and even holding Bitcoin can put you in jail for 10 years. So that's a very scary situation. And uh, a lot of uh, talk has been happened over that. And it turned out that it was just a draft bill. So even if the bill does include a clause like that, it it, 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 it seems unlikely to me that it will actually get implemented. And right now that so many things are happening on this blockchain and DLTs and other cryptocurrency stuffs around the space. Yeah, that's very interesting as most European countries already have some kind of regulations in terms of making sure that you pay taxes for the Bitcoin that you convert into fiat. <clears throat> Now we don't have anything right now in India like that. It will be very necessary for the community to even properly function. There are a lot of businesses in this market, lots of exchanges who are shutting down their shop just because these kind of regulatory issues. So the regulatory situation in India is very obscured right now. It's not at all clear. Nobody has any clue how they are going to behave, what they are going to consider. And it's very difficult for the entrepreneurs to make business in these kind of situations and that's what we are seeing here a lot of people are closing shop uh, they just cannot sustain this uncertainty i was thinking right now at a comparison with china which is also a populous country and mm -hmm. they had many instances in which they announced that they were banning bitcoin mm -hmm. but at the same time they had these mining rigs that were running Mm -hmm. Are you aware of any mining going on in India? I'm not. I'm not particularly. <clears throat> uh, I haven't been came across uh, anybody saying any kind of mining activity going anywhere in India. Uh, I, I, I am not very sure about the mining profit loss calculations uh, regarding the current uh, electricity price in most of the cities and around the villages of India. I, I'm not sure how it turns out, but it seems to me there is not much mining activities happening in India. And if it has been happening, and uh, I think the government would have already stopped it by now because uh, they seem to be keen on stopping all these kind of activities that are happening until they manage to come up with a proper regulations and proper decision how they are going to handle this. Let's say that India bans Bitcoin tomorrow. 
Is there any way for you to appeal to that political process and maybe contact your representatives and help to draft a better bill which favors the Bitcoiners in your country? Mm, there is no structured process for that. Uh, I think a lot of people will do that and a lot of people will come out and put their voice together to, um, uh, to import sense in this kind of ridiculous uh, banning if that happens. A part of the very obvious sense that they can try to import into the government that this kind of banning doesn't work. If you try to ban it, the entire system will still exist, but it will only exist in the dark market. And the government knows that India, this is the thing about India. India has a very huge dark market. It has all sorts of illegal market in every cities, in every village, and you can get anything in anywhere if you pay the price for it. So the dark, the black market problem is very big in India, and it, it's kind of a bigger part of the economy in many places where the white market is the smaller one and the black market is the actual market where you go to buy stuff. So. As this kind of markets exist very freely and very fluently in India, it's, it will become very difficult for government to implement this kind of ban. Because the moment this kind of ban will happen, what people will start doing is, is just simply make OTC uh, uh, cash, cash transactions, cash on-ramps for Bitcoin in uh, corners of markets like in black alleys or something like that. And these kind of things will keep on popping, popping up. So the government needs to know that uh, if they try to go to that path, what will happen is they will not be able to stop it, but the entire economy will go into the black market. And they cannot, they do, they already cannot stop the black market. So they all, they can't stop black uh, Bitcoin in black markets. That's even a more difficult problem. So I think if the government goes, does go. Uh, around this path and there there are people who will come forward even yeah i would come forward and uh, try to import sense into this legislation that this is not the way you should handle it because it will only make the situation worse so right now considering your views you're basically a red pillar it's too late for you to get back to that old beliefs that you used to have. And if the situation in India was to get very bad and you you basically had no way to use your Bitcoins, would you consider leaving your home country? Mm, probably it depends on a lot of situations. Leaving your home country is a very difficult part. And uh, because... Um, in India, we, we live in this kind of social structures where you live close nearby to your parents, you live close nearby to your relatives, you have this kind of social cultures around your localities, you almost know people around you. So it's very difficult to sever this kind of ties and leave to another country uh, just because they don't let you use Bitcoin. It's it, it's not a good enough bargain uh, for me, it seems, because there are other important stuffs in my life that I will I, I will tend to attain to uh, than 
uh, uh, than putting my priorities on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is important for me, I, uh, and uh, I would love to have my savings in Bitcoins, and I would love, love to use at a store of value. But if I if they have imposed some kind of bans and I cannot use Bitcoin right now, that doesn't uh, that doesn't affect me much because I am not using Bitcoin anyway because there is no closed loop economy going on right now with Bitcoin, and that is one of my goal to. Uh, do in this uh, uh, ecosystem, <coughs> sorry, ecosystem where I can where I can have this kind kind of closed loop economies where people accepting Bitcoin as a exchange of goods and services. We don't have that right now. So uh, even the government is not banning it. I, I I still can't use my Bitcoins because there is no one accepting it. So it's going to take some time to have that kind of closed loop economy. But just because government banning it, I don't think I will be leaving my country. But that's a huge power which the government has over you as a citizen. As yeah, they, they just know that you're bound to your family and to your house. So yes. in very specific terms relating to this industry, that's a central point of failure. True, true, very true. That's the central point of failure, and that's a that, that that's that's a very big shackle that you have around you, and the government is kind of can can game that shackle to force you to do things that you might not want to do, or force you to do things, uh, force you not to do things that they don't subscribe to, and that's a very true problem, and I don't know how I can solve that right now. Uh, I can only hope the situation will no not go much worse because uh, it's, it's really very difficult for me to go settle in different country and uh, severe or sever all these ties that I have. So, yeah, that's true. It's, it's the central point of failure. And I'm kind of like hoping that that central point doesn't do something very bad. Yeah, in some cases like Venezuela, there were entire families which moved out of the country because of Bitcoin. And it's not because of Bitcoin, but thanks to Bitcoin, as yes, they are like they used money. Bitcoins to go out of it. I think the situation in Venezuela made people do that because the situation is so much dire there. It's not that bad here. I, I told you before, the currency is kind of stable. It's not completely collapsing. People still can use it as their unit does use it as their unit of account. And uh, and the situation, the, the, the theater is not burning enough right now. That doesn't say that it will not burn in some point of future with that much force. It can burn. But it's not just burning at that heat right now so that the people are not screaming out of the theater and moving out through that exit door. They are just, they, it, it's just warm. They are just feeling the heat. But it's not warm enough so that, uh, to make them leave the theater. If that makes sense. It does. I mean, even when I think in my case, I'm part of the European Union, and that has both advantages and disadvantages. On one hand, I am able to leave to any country, any of the 27 other countries which are part of this organization. But at the same time, we have a legal framework which comes from Brussels. So if they decide at the European Union level to ban Bitcoin, then it's going to be felt in all the states. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm, I'm thinking sometimes that the worst that we can have in terms of political reception hasn't happened yet. And part of the reason why I'm happy about the developments in Bitcoin is that I see a lot of institutional friendliness towards it. I don't care much about their adoption and how much they're buying it and how much they invest in it. But the fact that they show interest means that it's not going to get banned, at least not in the Western world. Yeah, I had the same kind of feeling here because uh, I told you about that interview, uh, that uh, TV show that happened, a news show that happened where two government officials were there. And uh, what was uh, what the optimistic uh, view that I ended up at that show is that they just shifted from anger to bargain. So that means they are moving up through the ladders of stages of griefs. So that means that there is now less probability that they will make an outright ban than it was two, three years ago. Two, three years ago, they might have higher chance of considering outright ban, but they just showed that they have a lower chance of it just because showing that they stepped up the ladder from anger to bargain. So that's a good sign. Also, as a politician, it makes a lot more sense to try not to divide the people and collect taxes as opposed to instilling fear and using, making use of the force that you have? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the, the, the biggest incentive uh, for, a politician, for politicians to ban Bitcoin is because if they don't ban Bitcoin, they have these exchanges running. And the, through these exchanges, they can at least collect the taxes that they want. If they ban Bitcoin, the market immediately goes to the black market, the black zone, and they do not tax black zone anyway. So they lose a huge amount of tax from the economic activity that will be happening, and they might not want that. Uh, if they have any kind of, uh, any, any simple uh, intelligent politicians will decide not to ban Bitcoin if they understand remotely anything about it. And I think they do. They do a lot of. Lot, lot. They have been studying a lot, and that has been shown. In the, I, I have seen that in that uh, past uh, news show that happened. So they know and uh, they understand these problems. They know that they can't stop it. They understand the privacy issues. They understand the laundering issues, and uh, they are trying really hard to come up with a sensible way of dealing with this thing that doesn't necessarily make the situation immediately worse. And uh, banning Bitcoin outright will immediately make the situation much, much worse. And I'll be surprised if they do that. But if they shifted their position, as you said, from being angry to being willing to cooperate, then there must have been some kind of pressure coming their way. There must have been some people who told them, you know, it's a lot better to allow this to flourish and we can collect taxes. So there mm -hmm. must be a large community, right? Yeah, uh, um, I think there is something interesting happening here. It's not even about the community. I think many of the politicians are waking up to this fact that Bitcoin is a fucking good store of value. So they want to have that store of value for themselves. So they have their inherent interest, self-interest, not to ban this thing because they would want to use this thing because it's good for them also. We did not have this kind of awesome store of value before Bitcoin. So it makes sense 
for and if you know anything about indian politics and its scams you will see all these politicians have huge amount of wealth stores in foreign banks or in underground or even as a gold as a stack under their mattress they, this thing happens and this is such a menace in india that i, I think a lot of people will wake up to this fact that the reason they were doing this thing is because they want to store this huge massive wealth that they have gathered through corruptions or through um, whatever ways or through whatever other different ways they want to retain that wealth and they want they, they don't want to not only they don't want to tax on it they don't want it to inflate away they don't want it to inflate away so the the, the thing that they do they immediately convert it into hard assets like real estate like gold like uh, foreign dollars and put it into foreign bank accounts the reason they are doing that because they want to escape out of the inflation whatever the small little inflation it's not even small it's quite big whatever the inflation that is happening through indian currencies they don't they don't keep that wealth in indian currency they immediately convert it the reason they convert it because they want to store through it store it through time and once they realize that bitcoin is the best of all the store of values that has that we have right now they will have a huge amount of self interest to want to use bitcoin so i think not only there is a pressure from the community which is also there as lots of businesses are trying to make and they are also arguing like if you try to ban if they arguing the government that if you try to ban it what will happen is we will lose all these economic activities and we lose out in the forefront of this emerging technology while that is also happening i think also the politicians are waking up to this fact that this is a very good store of value for them also and that's also a reason that they will not ban it So we have yet another instance where the situation is solved by human greed and maybe it's part of the solution an extension of the Byzantine general problem yes, exactly exactly this is what blew my mind when i first saw bitcoin in first two days the way you solve that age old problem of order without structure is use our incentive mechanism to model a design that works on human greed the order emerges out of human greed because human are greedy that's how that's why bitcoin works that's why mining works that's why you have the longest chain that's why this system is not disintegrating itself into chaos because humans are greedy and that is the crucial brilliance of satoshi nakamoto's design that he used greed to make order out of chaos and basically he used human greed to create a deterministic anarchic system and that is just fascinating yeah i guess he understood money a lot better than most of our economists yeah yeah it it it, it sometimes it sometimes blows my mind like how can someone have this many ingenious idea in one single design from all these different fields like you have to be are very good at writing code you have to be very good at understanding cryptography you have to be under- very good at understanding game theory you have to be very good at understanding economics you have to be very good at designing the entire human psychology that should make that system work it's just not a simple cryptographic design, cryptographic uh, structure it's not just a simple computer code it's a huge massive incentive human social engineered 
thing. I don't even know how to describe it. And it just works. And it works because of human greed. And it's it's just so fascinating. I sometimes think that it cannot be just one people. I I I I I have hard time believing that all of this came out just one single mind. I think it was a group of people who brainstormed through years to finally come out with a design that can work. Well, if you look at the history of inventions dealing with digital cash, you start with David Chom, who had mm-hmm. Gcash, and then you get to Wei Dai. And you get to Adam Back, who tried to find a way to prevent spam by creating hashing cycles from your processor. Mm-hmm. And then you get to Hal Finney mm-hmm. and also Nick Sabo, who had BitGold. E- e- BitGold was the last, last workable iteration that happened before Bitcoin. It was in 2005, I think. I think uh, Bitcoin happened after eGold stopped. Right, but eGold had the central point of failure. Yes, yes, yes. Most of them have the central point of failure. This, this. Uh, I'm not an expert on this thing because there are lots of people who are who who studied this thing a lot. But what I seem to understand that the crucial difference between Bitcoin and all other previous iterations that happened is this this closed loop of incentive structures that is self-sufficient, that grows on its own. Because if you look at the design, Satoshi did not invent any of the primitives. All the primitives are already there. Many of the crucial primitives, like the proof of work, like the blockchain, Markle trees, cryptographic hashes, digital signatures, all these things exist for 20 years. So Satoshi didn't invent any of this. What he did is combining all these primitives in such a way that you have an incentive structure which completes a loop on its itself loop on itself and because it completes this loop on itself it has this self sustaining this periodic growth almost like as a biological form and it grows on its own so that was the crucial key point of bitcoin and none of the previous iteration had this thing so yeah that's there that was a very nice description raj I feel like I couldn't have said it any better than you did. And that comparison with a biological being actually blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I, this, is, uh, this is another thing that blew my mind in, uh, in uh, I think, third or fourth month of my Bitcoin study when I finally understood that this is a biological thing. Uh, the reason I, it blew my mind because two years before that, I read Richard Dawkins' uh, Selfish Gene. And in that book, at the last chapter, Richard Dawkins talks about ideas, how ideas are very similar to genes. And ideas spread among the society through minds to minds, just like genes spread among the species. And the ideas which are sustainable, which, which, which survives are the one that ideas that morphs the society. So it's like a biological evolution. The, the only idea that gets morphed into the society are the idea which is sustainable on its, on its own. But we have all these different kinds of iterations, random iterations of ideas, just like we have all these different kinds of random iterations in genes. So mutations happens in genes, but all mutations doesn't stay. The only mutations stays which makes the species better as a whole. 
So the same kind of thing, he extended that, and that was fascinating to me. And this clicked two years later when I first understood Bitcoin as a biological organism. And this blew my mind. And I, I, I thought like this is exactly working like a virus. It's like an idea virus spreading in the world. And it's going, going and it, it has all the characteristics of virus growth. It, it, it's growing exponentially. It's growing through waves of adoptions. And it just keeps on growing and growing and growing and growing because it has this self-fulfilling incentive structural loop in, in built in, in, in its design. And so, yeah, it, it's very much like a biological organism. It's very much like an idea virus that grows through the society. And I, I, I even go a little bit farther and I think I, I extend it like it's almost like the T virus. Have you seen Resident Evil? So in, Res, uh, in Resident Evil, you have this T concept of T virus. A T virus is like a virus that when you get affected, you become a zombie. So the next thing you want to do after becoming zombie is bite other people because the T virus wants to spread to other people. So this is the same thing exactly happens here. If you, if you are into Bitcoin, the next thing you want to do is tell people about Bitcoin. And you want to spread this idea from one mind to another. And you, you, you almost have your inherent need of doing that. And that is so weird. And, uh, and that is exactly like an idea virus work. Were you able to be an advocate of Bitcoin to your peers, to your family, to your friends? Uh, that's what I've been trying to do for last uh, seven or eight months. Almost, um, uh, I, 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 I think of it almost like an exercise. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's, a, it's, it's amazingly difficult to explain people to Bitcoin, explain Bitcoin to people. So what I have been trying to do is I have been catching um, students in universities and trying to have conversations with them on Bitcoin. And to my surprise, I have successfully <laughs> indoctrinated some people into this Bitcoin zombie. And I have this group of people right now working in my local universities who are, uh, who, who are amazingly fascinated by this idea. They, they just needed the click to happen. And the click is very difficult because the click happens after a, after a long period of exploration. It just, just doesn't happen immediately. Just because you see Bitcoin, doesn't, it doesn't immediately clicks on your head. It happens when you start exploring and exploring and exploring. So the part of uh, doctrinating other Bitcoiners is, it, 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 the, the key is to find the potent mind. The potent mind, who is a mind which has all the relevant ideas in place, and all you need to do is connect them together. Once you connect them together, it just clicks in them. And then they will just explore on their own. They will learn on their own. They will scour on their own. They will go to extent that you have just done in order to understand this thing so that they can understand it better. You cannot explain people to Bitcoin. They have to understand it on their own. What you can do is put the dots in their head and then just connect it so it clicks. Okay, so that sounds a little successful on your side. You managed to convince some university students that it's not, not Not in a large enough scale. It's just two, three people. I, 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 I am planning to uh, build, uh, build it up in scale so that I can have uh, a local group of Bitcoiners in local universities so we can have all these kinds of meters, discussions, and hackathons and maybe build cool stuffs on it. So I am in the process of it. I am just... Uh, uh, the, the, when I started, I was like, uh, 
the lone wolf and there was no one and uh, when i when i uh, started thinking about making bitcoin businesses bitcoin only businesses on in india the first biggest difficulty i faced is like there are no bitcoins so i kind of had to make bitcoiners out of thin air so that's what i've been doing for last two three uh, last seven, seven eight months and i got like two three people who i have successfully uh, able to convert and they are like right now in the process of this transition this process of studying and this process of exploration and i am planning to build it up in scale and see how it goes from there okay but have you also educated yourself to code and be able to develop applications for bitcoin like wallets and yeah stuff? uh yeah i i have done that uh, i have been doing that but uh uh, uh for the first uh, first one year of my study what was uh, what seemed important is i should learn how to code i should learn how the cryptographic primitives that was the basic basic understanding i should have in order to work on this system so i taught myself how to code but i am not at that level where i can cook up a uh, full functioning wallet softwares so i have to i have tried i i have tried my hand in many hobby projects but it's not nothing in a deployable way but the more i am going towards it i i'm thinking like i i i don't want to be a full time developer developing things on bitcoin i just happen to know people who can do that i should be able to motivate them to do this thing because they can do this job better than me so i should not be directly writing codes on bitcoin i should figure find out people who can do that thing better than me and i should i should make them realize why why that's the best thing that they can do with their free time so that's what i've been trying to uh, that's that's what i've been going right now so what is your plan maybe in the next few years are you trying to build a large community and then what develop businesses surrounding bitcoin educate the minds of the youth uh education is obviously a big part of it uh francis polia very recently made a post in twitter which i completely agree with he said like the way to make a cypherpunk business is is don't go for a product at first go for a network of motivated and resourceful people what you need first is a a network of motivated and resourceful people who are investing their mental capabilities their mental time and their free energy into understanding a seemingly complex stuff once you have that what you can do you can make all sorts of different structures with this group of people you can make a academic forum you can make a club you can make a society you can make a meetup or you can make a business where you can build where you are building bitcoin infrastructure products like nodes uh, like uh, full nodes or hardwares or hardware wallets or all this kind of stuff and there is a very big lacking of this kind of infrastructures in india we just don't have it here and the problem is like if you want to import this already super cool nodal hardwares it's it's just so costly that most of the people can't just afford it so the reason we can cannot the people cannot afford it because it, it it's uh, once there is this con- uh, currency conversion thing so uh, $300 is pretty much a big amount for a net, uh, for a regular indian then Uh, over that there is this import cost so the cost boosts up so high that people can't just use it so 
mostly what people are trying to do in the small community of that we have is people are trying to build their um, uh, Bitcoin nodes on their own. So that's much cheaper to do, but it's much harder to do. But it's a very good exercise of learning. So that's what we are. Uh, that's what I have been doing, and that's what many other people have been doing. So I think there is a very good scope of having Bitcoin-only businesses and infrastructure businesses to deploy in India. That's one of my goal. But I I do not have a properly chalked out path how I can reach there right now. Uh, I have this immediate goal of making as many Bitcoiners I I can out of these university students because they seems to be the most potent mind that I, I have at my disposal I, that, that I can use them or I can help them to understand these things and uh, and they are almost always receive these ideas in a very enthusiastic tone so that's a good thing and that's what I'm looking to build um, next. Just out of curiosity, what are these students studying right now? The ones who got interested well, they, in Bitcoin? They're, they're, they're from all sorts of different backgrounds. There is no one background. We have students from economics, mathematics, engineering, all different forms of engineering, political science, history, law, and uh, all sorts of things. And that, 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 that's, that, that's, one of my, uh, that's one of the crucial part of understanding Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not a domain-specific knowledge. Uh, it, it, it's a it, it, it's a multidisciplinary thing. So you need people from all different sorts of discipline to come together to explore this one idea from all these different viewpoints. And the fascinating thing about Bitcoin is everybody has a perspective on this object from their own different discipline. This hasn't never happened with any kind of other technical innovations or softwares or any kind of other sciences. So. Even people from history, even people from political science, and you can relate it very easily. We have all sorts of people from all different backgrounds. So uh, uh, right now, what we have, what, what I have, is like two, three people from uh, different uh, engineering backgrounds and different uh, uh, other majors like history, and uh, I think that's all. I have. We, 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 we are still looking for a political science student. We don't have a political science student as of yet. But yeah, mostly engineers and mostly we, uh, we have um, another. Ravi is a mathematician. Ravi is uh, doing a PhD in maths. So yeah, that's it. Sometimes I think that in order to get into Bitcoin, you need the proper background or life experience which motivates you. As you don't just get into it, you somehow need it in your life. Yeah, true. It, uh, true. In in, uh, in in order to properly jump inside that rabbit hole, you need to have some kind of questions that you have been looking answer for. So it happened to me because I I was asking that question that Bitcoin suddenly gave the answer for, and that that's why I just jumped into it. And this happens to all people. And it, it's not necessarily to say that there is one single background that you should come from in order to have this kind of jumping moment. Uh, it can happen for any any kind of background. It can happen from any different background. Whatever your background is, there is some part of life. There is some questions of life. There is some questions of quest that you can ultimately attach to this thing and then ultimately can fall down into this rabbit hole. So that's why that's the reason why, why we see 
people from all sorts of political domains, from left, right, center, from all sorts of religious domain, from all sorts of technical domain, from all sorts of artistic domain, are able to make themselves interested in Bitcoin because Bitcoin can be seen from all these different perspective viewpoints and everybody can have their own story engraved in it. This is more of a joke, but it can become a serious question in a certain context. How would you explain to somebody who maybe listens to this and has no idea what we're talking about that Bitcoin is not some kind of religious cult and we are undergoing this missionary quest in order to spread the word about it and make people use our made-up money that no government backs? So the essential question is, why are we not a cult and what sets us apart from one? Mm, I think we are a cult. What's wrong with being a cult? Okay. Uh, I was about to argue that unlike many cults, which are mostly concerned with spiritual savior and redemption and whatever concept they're trying to promote, this is more about economic rationality than about anything else. So if it's about your self-interest and greed and money, it makes a lot more sense than, it's much more practical than anything else that deals with something immaterial that we cannot perceive and is not tangible. Even though Bitcoin is not tangible in itself, it holds a certain value that we agree on. And that's something very different from trying to established norms regarding what a perceived God is like or trying to find ways to worship. Okay, I understood your point. Uh, I can argue from a completely opposite way because the cult emerges because there is a belief system. The belief system happens because people believe in certain ethical norms, certain ethical statements that they seems to be following to be the truth. And that's completely subjective. That depends on their entire religion, that depends on their geography, that depends on their culture. But cults always happens because they have a belief system. And a belief system emerges whenever there is a question of ethics. And I think Bitcoin exactly, exa Bitcoin is exactly that. And uh, uh, I, I think uh, ethics of money production, who wrote that? Mrs.? Uh, no, sorry, Rothbard. I, I, I forgot. If you, uh, the, if you read the ethics of money production, I forgot who wrote it. And there, the, the question of economics is basically answered is through the question of ethics. And ethics and economics is very much related to each other. You cannot have a sound economics without a sound, sound ethical ground. So in order to have a sound economics, if you have need to have a sound ethical ground, you, the inherently that means that the thing with which you are building, trying to build the economics has to have ethics engraved, question of ethics engraved into some, some form of it. And Bitcoin does engrave some form of ethics into it. You cannot inflate the supply of Bitcoin. That's an ethical stand. So whenever you have an ethical stand, it immediately, there is no difference between a cult. You can describe cults in lots of different ways, in positive, in positive ways, in negative ways, but 
the core concept of a cult is that it has to have its one basic ethical statement and because, and because bitcoin does have its one basic ethical statement i don't think that you can argue that it's not a cult it is a cult but what is that ethical statement that you're speaking of uh nobody should have the power to manipulate money supply that's fair that's the ethical But statement you think that's the only one involving it i think no there 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 are many many others like uh, uh, there are ethical statements with privacy there are ethical statements with sovereignty there are ethical statements with free trades free trades there are ethical statements with free markets all this comes all this builds up on this on this basic ground i think the basic ground is nobody should be the in the position of power to control monetary policy because if somebody does that's unethical the reason that they control the fact that they control is itself the unethical part of that statement so the basic building block of the of this free market ethics that you can build up on top of bitcoin is starts from this fact that nobody should be in the power of control monetary policy and if you believe that is a ethically correct statement to have then you have a cult that makes sense if you look at it from this point of view even though i guess the western understanding of a cult is slightly different and has to deal with all sorts of crazy people getting together yeah the, yeah the, that's just how you define cult you, you can define the word cult in many images you can have a bad image like all these crazy people with black hairs and black nails and all like you call that a cult or you can call a cult in a very different image it it depends on how you are defining the word but the essence of i guess the essence of a cult is this like you you need to have a belief system you need to have a belief system engraved in the design of the cult every cult believes some statement without there cannot be any cult and if you have a belief system then you inherently end up being in a in in a phenomena which is kind of like religion and and you and you uh, and you hear saying this thing from other people who are not exactly bitcoin maximalist they they think of bitcoin maximalism as kind of a religion because maybe it is because maybe it is because it has a belief system engraved into it it has a ethical point it has a ethical stand over which you stand and make the further progression of your societal viewpoint that you build on top of it like the free market that the privacy like the user sovereignty and all these other things so it does kind of make sense uh, to agree with their argument that this is a belief system and if this is a belief system there is not much difference between it and uh, any other kind of religion these can be actually the foundations of an institutional cult that we can establish so we don't pay taxes anymore <laughs> probably probably this can be the cult of the next uh, human evolution and uh, i don't know i don't know how it's going to play out but it seems to be that 
I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. So whenever I, I, I hear the word cult in context of Bitcoin, I happen to agree with it, but it doesn't necessarily immediately strike a bad image in front of me. What strikes me that it's a necessarily, it is a necessary feature that Bitcoin needed to have in order to do what it's supposed, what it is aiming to do. It needed to have this ingrained uh, belief system in it because that's when you hit individual mind at the core heart of it. If you cannot hit at its belief system, you cannot make it a zombie virus. So the only way Bitcoin can succeed is by making itself like a zombie virus. And the only way it can make itself as a zombie virus is by hitting at the heart of the human psyche that is their core belief system. And I think Bitcoin is in the process of doing that. That's interesting. It's going to also be fascinating to see how this plays out in the coming years and with more adoption, how we are going to change the narratives because objectively speaking, we can say that Bitcoin has has gone through many phases of adoption and different narratives that preceded and yes. facilitated this. So it's going to be a matter of how do you present this protocol because essentially it's just code to somebody who is willing to embrace it but is not at the edge of the society is just a normal person. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yeah. We, 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 need, we need to, we will see narrative changes. Narrative changes happens all the time. But what, what I think we need to be careful about these changes of narrative, that this narrative, the, the core narrative of Bitcoin should not be distorted. The core narrative was, was this one single ethical statement. Nobody should have the power to manipulate economic policy, the money policy, monetary policies. So if this narrative gets distorted in some way, we, we can have all these higher kinds of narratives depending on the suitability of our environment, depending on how the network is behaving, depending on how the adoptions is coming. But we should not be, be willing to... To, should not be willing to forfeit this very basic core fundamental narrative because that's what makes Bitcoin take. I guess the biggest kind of attack vector that you have on Bitcoin is the fixed supply. If you no longer have that and people agree that you can have an inflationary Bitcoin, then that's the end of it. You don't yep. need to take down the mining... The, uh, the, uh, I don't remember where I read, but I was reading it somewhere that the the biggest right decision that Satoshi took was having a fixed supply cap because he knew that the moment you make the supply cap fluctuating, the moment you have this question of inflation, that 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 opens up a lot of political attack vector because there is no right answer for the right inflation there is no right inflation so you can never objectively determine that this should be the right inflation you can see this happening in the ethereum right now they they do not have a consensus on what should be the right inflation because you cannot have a concession on right inflation because every inflation is right inflation so the moment you start making this question you open yourself to this political attack vector where you can never reach a consensus and that's why satoshi fixed the cap at 21 million because 
he knew that this question was an attack vector. Once you start having this question of whether to increase the cap or not, that opens up the attack of controlling the monetary policy because there is no one true answer for it. I agree. And that's the most important feature of Bitcoin. We like to say that it's going to lead to deflation and a situation where the demand is higher than the supply, which means an appreciation in terms of fiat money. Yes. And the way it's going to play out during the various halvings that we have throughout the years, that's also something interesting to witness. Yeah, true. It's, it's, it's interesting because we never had a deflationary money supply. Uh, so, uh, it's not deflationary, it's negative inflation. So the inflation is there, the inflation just decreases with time and at some point it just stops. So it's not actually exactly deflationary, it's, it, it's fixed supply money, money system. So we never actually had this fixed supply money system and we don't exactly know how it's going to play out. And we can theorize lots of crazy theories. We can theorize how it will work, how it will not work. But this is the biggest problem of Bitcoin. We do not have a mathematical theory that proves, a mathematical derivation that proves that this is why Bitcoin will work or this is why Bitcoin will not work. So this is the curious part of Bitcoin. And uh, I read somewhere, I don't remember, that Bitcoin is this weird thing that doesn't work in theory, but it only works in practice. And because of this nature of Bitcoin, we cannot predict what it will do because we don't simply have a derivation of why it's working. We just know it's working. We kind of trying to guess how it's working, why it's working, and we have all these different kind of theories, but we do not, we, we haven't been able to describe it in a mathematical formal language or why this will work or why this will never work. So that's a thing that is remaining for us. I, and I, I don't think we will ever be able to describe it in a formal mathematical language. What we will be able to do is we will be able to observe and formulate our rationale about why this system is working, how this system is working, and what kind of, what kind of effect this system is having in our society. That's all we can do. You're right. And I guess this is where that part about possibly becoming a cult comes into play. <laughs> yes, yes, As it does, it does. We are going to really, really be confident into the qualities of Bitcoin and trust that it works and project this kind of trust into others. And even though it's a trustless protocol that anybody can audit, even I can go into GitHub and check the code, we have to actually trust that the people who are improving it are not going to create some kind of inflation bug or they're not going to destroy the protocol. And there have been precedents of contentious attacks towards Bitcoin and what it essentially is as a decentralized network of computers. They, they try to impose a larger block size, which would effectively increase or decrease the amount of computers that are able to synchronize. True, true. So, uh, so the system is rigged with all sorts of trade-offs. There are trade-offs here and there. And I, I, I don't think there is one single parameter that you can change in Bitcoin that doesn't come with a trade-off. So the trade-offs are everywhere. And this is where the narrative comes in. The narrative says 
the, the, the narrative that you subscribe to, the narrative that makes it a cult, that, that narrative says what kind of trade-offs are acceptable and what kind of trade-offs are not acceptable. So that's how the community as a whole should be making decisions. And that's the reason why, should, why we should never dilute the core narrative of this protocol. Because if we dilute the core narrative of this protocol, we don't have the direction of deciding on these trade-offs. So that is a very crucial point. And also, this trust has to happen. Uh, this trust has to happen like uh, it happened for gold. Uh, see, in, uh, in societies where people buy gold jewelries, uh, they, don't, they, they don't trust the gold money supply. They don't know where the money supply is coming from. They don't know who, who, who is holding how much amount of gold. They don't even know what's the price of gold. So, but they, they, they inherently trust the asset in their gut because they have been doing that for last thousands of years. And it at every time, and it has been proved to work in a timeless, fan, a timeless manner. The same way you cannot, cannot find out a mathematical derivation of why Bitcoin will always work. The same, the same thing happens in gold. You cannot have a mathematical formal derivation of why gold should always store their value. Because you can have all sorts of situations where gold doesn't store its value. For example, you hit by an asteroid made out of gold. So then it doesn't store its value anymore. Or you make some uh, weird, crazy technical innovations where you change any atoms into golds or something like that, then it doesn't store its value anymore. So you, you, you also don't have these normative derivations in gold, but still people instinctively believe in the properties of gold in its value transferring mechanism through time, and they don't have to think about it. It's engraved in their, in, in their psyche, in their subconscious. They just know in their gut that it's a good idea. And that kind of thing will develop in Bitcoin as the progression and adoption goes. And it, it's just a matter of time. It, 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 it's, the, it, it's the cantillon effect. So I think it's the cantillon effect no, or something else. Uh, the anyway, cantillon so, effect is about money being sent first to the bankers and oh yeah it's, it's that one it's that one uh, so there is another effect i forgot its name it says like the more a thing exists the higher the chance in future it will exist what what is that effect i don't i don't remember butterfly so, effect i don't know yeah it's not coming in my head right now it, uh, there is an effect like like that i i have to look at. so it's the same thing so the more bitcoin exists the higher confidence people have that bitcoin will exist 10 years more so in 20 years higher confident people will have that bitcoin will exist 30 years more in 50 years higher confident they will have that bitcoin will exist 50 years more so this is how confidence and counterconfidence builds up the con build, builds up the capability of society to have trust on a particular kind of asset as a store of value and that's how monetary mediums emerges out of it so this kind of thing will happen in Bitcoin. And uh, it is very difficult to precisely figure out or precisely try to predict what exactly we will see, what exactly how it will happen. But yeah, we kind of get a sense. We kind of judge a sense of what, where this direction can go. And uh, yeah, we just have to wait and watch. I'm not sure if I have any more questions for you. This was a very lengthy and well-structured discussion, which somehow came full circle. We started from the idea of gold in India and we returned to it as a belief system. At first it was a traditional way of 
storing value. And then we discussed about how gold in itself is a cult in which you believe that it has value. You no longer question its viability on the market. And it's just there. You know that it has value and you're supposed to either hold it or transact it or melt it because people have been doing it for so many centuries that you can no longer track where it all started. You have no idea why it's golden. Yes. Some, some the question of why is not existent in this kind of system. So that's, that's the property of cults. The question of why doesn't exist. Exactly. So thank you very much for this interview. It was very good, very insightful. I didn't know what to expect when we first started. And even though I guess... The beginning was a bit rough as I was a bit sleepy. It's very early in the morning here and we had to adapt schedules. We ended yeah. up having a very good conversation with... Yeah, me too. I guess it, was, I, it was fascinating talking I to look you. forward to listening to it after yeah, I me publish too. it. Yeah, so me too. I remind myself some ideas which you passed to me of which I didn't think before. Yeah, it, it has been fascinating. Um, Every time I have conversations on Bitcoin, I seem to have gathered new ideas that I haven't thought of before. So there are many ideas that I have said uh, that just came to me right now that haven't occurred to me before. And that's why I enjoy talking about Bitcoin because it opens up in all sorts of different ways that you can't just expect what will happen where the conversation will go. And that's just fascinating and so much enjoying. Yeah, exactly. That's why I do this podcast. Not only that, I get to brag about it on Twitter, but most importantly, I get to learn. Yeah, true. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been an efficient way for me to learn these ideas and understand how it, it works in India and get a, an insider's view, basically. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm very grateful for this. And I guess I'll publish this very fast. Maybe by the end of the day, it will be online so we can share okay. it. Thank okay, yeah, much. thanks for having me. If you have it, any it has... closing statements or maybe you want to say hello to anyone who might be listening to this, this is your last chance. <laughs> yeah, uh, not that uh, way. Uh, just a general statement, stack sets. That's it. Stack That's sets. all you need to do, stack sets. Okay. Have a nice rest of your day and I'll talk to you later. Yeah, have a nice day too. It has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for having me. Bye, Raj. Bye.